Welcome to the Math and Thai podcast. This is Mike, and I'm blessed that you're joining us here today. Uh, thankful that there's so many wonderful teachings out there, and I pray that uh, what we are going to be doing today, going through the Gospel of Luke, will bless and encourage you in your walk with the Lord and in your understanding of the Gospels. And as Luke has told us his purpose in writing his Gospel, is he wants us to be sure, he wants us to be convinced, to be certain of the things that pertain to our faith. He's writing to Theophilus, and he's telling Theophilus that, I want you to be sure of this. I want you to know uh, that what you believe, what you've heard is true. And so he gives an orderly account, starting with uh, the forerunner of Jesus, John the Baptist, as we've been studying, uh, as Gabriel the angel goes to Zechariah, uh, and then Zechariah goes and tells Elizabeth, his wife, they were old, uh, Zechariah was a priest, and just a great favor from God. And Elizabeth's barrenness would have been a contrast to her position as a child of Aaron, as a faithful woman of the faith. Um, you would not expect her to have such uh, what would be viewed as a curse in that in that world. Uh, but she becomes pregnant and is going to bear John, who will bring great joy to all of the people and be that forerunner to the Messiah, the great one to come. And then the angel Gabriel goes to Mary afterwards, and announces to Mary that she is going to be with child. And they have that discussion of how can I be with child when I've not yet known a man? Mary was a virgin at this time. So we talked briefly about uh, the uh, what we call the Immaculate Conception. It's really uh, the Immaculate Birth of Jesus to a woman who's not known a man that uh, uh, the Holy Spirit came upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowed her and she became uh, pregnant with Jesus, who is known as the Son of God, and uh, would do this amazing work and be the fulfillment of all that God has in store for his people. And so as we continue on through the Gospel of Luke, we're in chapter 1. We're going to pick up today in verse 39. Because Mary is given a sign, just as Zechariah and Elizabeth were given a sign earlier on in chapter 1, and that was that Zechariah would not be able to speak because of his lack of belief. Because Zechariah had trouble believing the message from the angel Gabriel, Gabriel said, we're going to uh, you're not going to be able to speak until all of these things are fulfilled. And so that became the, the sign of uh, God's fulfillment of this promise in his life, in Elizabeth's life. And in Mary's life, she did believe. And she said, may it be done to your servant, as you've said. And because of her great faith, the angel offers a sign to her and says, hey, the sign is that Elizabeth, uh, your relative, is uh, pregnant as well. And you're going to uh, be able to see her and be confirmed in that. And so we've come up to that passage beginning in verse 39, where Elizabeth and Mary are able to meet together for the first time since becoming pregnant and share their stories and their accounts. And we're going to see some incredible things that happen between the two of them. Now, let me read verse uh, 39 through 45 first, and we'll dig into the meeting of the mothers. And we'll look at uh, Mary greeting Elizabeth and then Elizabeth's response to that. And then we'll conclude today at looking at Mary's uh, final response there. So in verse 39, it says, In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So an incredible blessing here from Elizabeth to Mary. Now, let's look at some of the stylistic structures first of all here to lay a foundation for what it is we're looking at. First of all, this is the first of five nativity hymns or songs that we see presented in the Gospel of Luke. We'll see a couple others coming as we get into chapter 2. Uh, but Elizabeth gives the first one here. And these are hymns or songs because they're in the same form as traditional psalms that we would read from the book of Psalms. You could put them to music almost, that they're, they're poetic formations of praise and of adoration to God for the work that he's doing in people's lives. So we have this one here by Elizabeth in verses uh, 42 through 45 of chapter 1. We're going to look today at, at Mary's in chapter, 40, uh, chap, uh, chapter 1, verse 46 through 55. And then we have Zechariah giving his uh, psalm 
uh, in chapter 1, verse 68 through 79. And then on into chapter 2, we're going to see the angels come out with their song of, of glory in chapter 2, verse 14. And then finally, we have Simeon, who will see Jesus in the temple and give a great uh, pronunciation there in chapter 2, verse 29 through 32. And that makes up five of these nativity-style hymns. And, and it's no mistake that there are hymns of praise and adoration given surrounding the birth of Jesus Christ. And so it's a significant event. It's the fulfillment, as Luke is going to be showing us here, it's the fulfillment of the Old Testament covenant, something that the entire Old Testament nation of Israel has been driving towards. So it's a momentous event, a momentous occasion, something worthy of praise and adoration, something worthy of these Psalms. Now, each of those five have a name. As we go through them, we'll, we'll look at the names a little bit. Today, we're going to look at Elizabeth. It's called the, the Benedicta, uh, from the word Benedictum, uh, which means uh, just a benediction or, or a speaking well of, the, the praise. Um, the Greek word is eulogy. We would use that at a funeral where we speak well of a person. But here, you're giving a praise to God for that. We're also going to look in verses 46 through 55 at Mary's Magnificat, where we get to see her response and her praise of God for the work in her life. Uh, next time we'll look at Zechariah's, it's called the Benedictus, where he's giving his own benediction uh, regarding the birth of his son and the work of God. And then the angels, uh, we call that their Gloria, because it's glory to God in the highest. And then for Simeon, it's called the Nunc Dimittis, which is speaking of just Simeon's final uh, joy of his life to see the birth of the Messiah uh, and the one that has come there. So, God is the subject of adoration in each one of these hymns. It's not a, a praise of the situation. It's the praise of the God who has brought forth his promises. And this is accompanied by astonishment by all those that are there. Who would have seen that this was the plan of God? Who would have really fully comprehend what God was doing there? And so there's an astonishment at the work of God in the lives of the people, in the life of Israel, and his salvation work that he's bringing about. And then finally, there's humility expressed by those that are pronouncing this benediction, pronouncing this praise, that they're humbled to be a part of this, to be an eyewitness to the work of God. Uh, and bringing forth the covenant promises and bringing forth salvation. There's great humility there. So these Psalms are very incredible praise uh, responses to the work of God that we see through the birth of the Messiah. Now, in order to dig into these, we're gonna, we've got to look all the way back in verse 24. We see that uh, Elizabeth had hid herself away for five months after learning about uh, becoming pregnant. She had, she had finally conceived, and she kind of hid herself away for five months there. She, uh, I would say, and, and I believe, although the scripture doesn't necessarily say this, that she wanted to make sure that the pregnancy was for real. Those first couple of months can be difficult months of a pregnancy where uh, lots of miscarriages can occur and lots of things can happen. And so many of my friends and others that I know of won't publicly announce their pregnancy until after at least the third month when growth begins to happen and health has continued up to that point. Then there's a little more security about that. Uh, for Elizabeth, since she was past childbearing years, it would have been very unusual to have a child in the first place. And after five months, she would be showing, she would be demonstrating that, that this is for real. And so it would have been a time for her to present herself uh, in public again. But she had hid herself away for those five months. And then in verse 26, we see the angel had appeared to Mary in the sixth month. And when we studied that portion, we noticed that that phrase, the sixth month, probably refers back to Elizabeth's time frame of pregnancy. It was probably the beginning of Elizabeth's sixth month of, of pregnancy. Uh, that was the only time marker we had so far in this chapter. And then up into verse 39, where we start our uh, passage today. It speaks about Mary making haste to travel from her home into the hill country. So after hearing about Elizabeth's um, pregnancy and then learning about her own pregnancy by the power of the Holy Spirit, Mary's going to travel to go and see Elizabeth. So our time frame there is Elizabeth is probably is in her sixth month of pregnancy. Mary would have been newly pregnant, um, newly uh, found with child at that point. And she would have traveled to go and visit there. And now Mary, if you remember, lives in Nazareth, which is in Galilee, about halfway up Israel at the foot of the mountains there. And she would have to travel down to Judah, where uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth would have lived. And the region of Judah, uh, Hebron is the largest city there. We don't know what city Zechariah and Elizabeth lived in, um, but 
to make a journey like that, it's approximately 75 miles. So it would have taken Mary anywhere from perhaps three to four days to make the journey itself. So it's no small journey. Now, the journey itself is rather odd that, that this young woman, perhaps even as young as a teenager, mid-teens, would uh, leave her home unaccompanied. And that day, uh, for the chastity of the woman, for uh, especially such a young, unmarried woman, they would not go out into public without accompaniment, either from a father or a brother or someone to ensure their chastity and their virtue and to give accountability for them. And so she wouldn't really go out even around her own hometown, much less to go on a journey all the way south of Jerusalem at this point. And then the fact that she is betrothed to a man, she would have had to leave him and travel away from him on her own. And it would have been rather odd. She would have, at this stage in her life being betrothed, she would have lived in a relative seclusion from the outside world perhaps having a few friends over, but awaiting for her spouse to come and take her and consummate the marriage and then uh, begin her life as a married woman at that point. Now, the journey is not commanded by anybody. The angel never tells her to go and visit. Uh, she's not told to go and do these things. So this is a urging on Mary's heart to go and see Elizabeth in order to confirm the things that the angel had said since Elizabeth's pregnancy was the sign itself. And so it says that she... Uh, arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And so uh, Mary comes <clears throat> into the home of, of Elizabeth and would greet her there. This was a, the normal cultural thing. It says in verse 40 that as she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. So she travels the 75 miles, takes the, the couple day journey, makes it there safely, all's well. And, and the normal cultural visitation procedures would have been that the younger would have blessed the older. Just the honor given to elders in that community, in the Jewish uh, community, uh, the, the sign of gray hair is a sign of respect and dignity. So Elizabeth would have been uh, the older and even more superior uh, based on her lineage. She's of the line of Aaron, we learned. She's the wife of a priest. She's faithful. Uh, her husband had been selected for a special duty in the temple recently. So Elizabeth certainly had the greater social standing, the great, greater respect within the Jewish community. So Mary would have come in and, and greeted Elizabeth in that, uh, in that light. And probably the greeting would have been not just your typical, hello, how you doing? But it would have been a sharing of this is what I've been doing. It, it, was, it was a little more in-depth than our typical greeting. They would have sat down and, and shared stories and told each other what was going on in their lives and had a, uh, a time of, of catching up, if you will. Now, what's amazing about this is Elizabeth's response. Uh, Elizabeth here, being the older, being the, the uh, more honorable person in this situation, uh, should have stayed in that position. But what she does is, uh, through her filling of the Holy Spirit, prompted by the child in her womb, she places herself in a servant role, humbling herself before the younger Mary. And so that's a, a pretty incredible thing for Elizabeth to do. Now, it's an incredible thing to note about Zechariah and Elizabeth. We see them doing this over and over throughout this first chapter, that they're serving faithfully in the temple despite their own quote-unquote cursing or barrenness. Uh, because they didn't have a child, that would have been viewed as a curse in that culture. We looked at that a bit. And, and so they're always humbling themselves in ministry, humbling themselves in service, and being faithful to the call of God. And here we see Elizabeth doing the exact same thing, humbling herself, recognizing what God is doing and uh, bestowing honor on Mary rather than taking it for herself. So an incredible thing that Elizabeth does, uh, just attesting all the more to her virtue and her character and the type of woman that she was. She was one that would have elevated others even at her own expense in general. Now, it tells us there that when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. Now, the baby would have been at, at least six months along in development, so certainly large enough to move. And we start seeing uh, movement within the womb of a pregnancy and, and a lot of activity at that point. So it wouldn't have been totally foreign, but but the, the leaping, it would have been an, an incredible uh, type of movement. This isn't just the normal poke and stuff that, that a pregnant woman would feel often. This was a complete rolling or tumbling or shifting or some larger type of movement that would have gotten Elizabeth's attention. And so um, 
the baby in Elizabeth's womb began to move, and Elizabeth attributes this movement to joy that the baby is expressing. We'll see that in another verse or so here, that the baby is leaping for joy at the sound of Mary's voice telling about her pregnancy with her child. And so uh, from the very outset here, we're seeing that Mary and Jesus, who's in her womb, are superior to Elizabeth and John, the child in her womb. And so the baby in Elizabeth's womb leaps for joy at the presence of the baby in Mary's womb in the same way that Elizabeth humbled herself and was blessing Mary, even though Mary's the younger one in the situation. So there's an incredible movement going on there. And so Elizabeth's response to Mary visiting is called the Benedicta. And it's the benedictum, it's the, the, the speaking well of, the uh, utterance or bestowing of a blessing on another one. That's what a, a benediction is. And she says uh, a number of great things here, and we want to unpack that as we go here. So the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. That's important because these words are not random worldly words. These are the words of the Holy Spirit in response to the presence of Jesus. This is what the Holy Spirit brought forth from the mouth of Elizabeth as she was moved to utter the very words of God for our benefit. And so in verse 42, she exclaimed with a loud cry. So it's not something she held back on, but it was a expression of praise, a blessing. That's why we call this one of the first of the five hymns or songs of blessing in this situation. She cries out and she says, blessed are you among women. And so first of all, she addresses Mary and she's Mary, Mary, you are blessed among women. And literally speaking, this means of all the women of the world, Mary, you are the most blessed. You are the most favored. Now the term blessing is eulogia. We mentioned that a little bit earlier. It's, it's eulogia. It means to speak well of. Logia means to, to speak or speech or word. And so it's to have good words for. So Mary is blessed amongst all the other women of the world, more than all the women of the world. She's spoken well of, which, which is an indication of the divine favor that's been given to her. God has looked at her and seen something about her and has given her favor and grace that God has good things to say about Mary. So Mary is blessed because God has found favor and thinks well of her, not just because other people say that. And so when we read that term blessed throughout scripture, we often think of, oh, how happy it. Sometimes it's translated that way. What it literally means, it's you are thought well of in the eyes of God. God speaks well of you and therefore acts towards you in such a way to use you and show his favor and his grace through you. And so Mary is blessed in a unique way amongst all of the women by bearing the, the, the son of God in her own womb, by bringing forth the, um, the Messiah, the, 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 the hope of salvation. And so she's a special, unique, blessed woman amongst all of the other women of the world. Now, there are certainly are many other women that are blessed, but she's unique in the sense that she is the only one that gets to fulfill this role and this task that God has set before her. So it's a wonderful thing. God has thought very highly of her to choose her for this special task. And that's what Elizabeth is saying. First of all, Mary, you are blessed. You are blessed. And we'll look back at this in just a minute. But, but earlier on when uh, Gabriel came and told Mary about the child that she would have, Mary kept talking about her lowly estate and how humble she was and how unworthy she was. But here Elizabeth is saying, you are very worthy. God has counted you worthy. And so it's the first time, as we'll see in a minute with Mary's uh, Magnificat that comes next, as Mary begins to see that it is a special role and a special place for her. But it doesn't stop there. Uh, Elizabeth continues on, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. So uh, this demonstrates, first of all, that, that Mary's already pregnant at this point. Uh, it's not something that will happen later. Mary is pregnant. She has the child growing within her womb already. Um, perhaps uh, John in the womb of Elizabeth recognized this and, and leapt at that point. Uh, either way, Mary is already pregnant. The fulfillment has already been placed there. She might not be showing physically, uh, but Mary is, is already uh, uh, down the road of God fulfilling this promise. Now, Mary also... Um, are, is the subject of blessing 
as well as the child. The child is blessed. Now, we see throughout Luke and we see throughout the rest of the scriptures that Jesus is uh, the, the, the exact representation of God. He is God in the flesh. And what God does is he looks upon his son and he constantly says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. We see that at the baptism. We see that at the, uh, the transfiguration. Every time God has an opportunity to speak, God the Father has a direct opportunity to speak about God the Son, he says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Heed him. Do what he says. And there's that blessing that God has good things to say. God the Father looks at God the Son and says, this is wonderful. He's doing what he's called to do. Listen to him. Follow him. And it's that divine affirmation. Now, this is a difficult subject here of, of how God the Father and God the Son are distinct and yet the same. It's the mystery of the doctrine of the Trinity, which we'll get into at another time. But uh, realizing that Mary is blessed in a unique way by the role she fulfills, the function she uh, serves by uh, bringing forth the Son of God into the world uh, through this uh, miraculous conception and then birth. And then also the fruit of her womb, that Jesus himself, the child of this divine conception, is a blessed child because he is God himself and has the uh, affirmation of the Father in his mission to save the world. And so we see all of that wrapped up just in the first line there of Elizabeth's benediction towards Mary. In the verse 43, she continues, she says, And why is this granted to me? that the mother of my Lord should come to me. And so Mary and Elizabeth obviously had some sort of relationship before this. They knew each other well. Perhaps uh, Mary and her visits down to Jerusalem to uh, worship at the temple, to be a part of festivals and uh, the feast of, of Israel. They would have spent time together. They would have known each other. They would have had a developed relationship. So for Mary to come and visit would not have been foreign or, or unknown to them. And so... During those visits, <clears throat> Elizabeth would have received greater honor from the younger Mary, and Mary would have been brought up under Elizabeth's tutelage in some of those ways. But here we have Elizabeth taking now the humble position. Elizabeth expresses great humility towards her younger relative, which was an unusual thing in that case. And so this would have had a significant meaning to the Jewish mind. Uh, for for. Elizabeth to say, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? That phrase, my Lord, would have reminded the Jewish student, the, the, the priestly line and all of those who had studied Judaism and were looking for this, uh, of Psalm 110 verse 1. And in that, David is talking. And David says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, in Matthew 22, verses 43 and 44, Jesus quotes this verse, and he uses the verse to show that the Christ would be the Son of God, not the Son of David. Now, he's from the Davidic line, as we saw a little bit uh, when we looked at the, uh, the beginnings of the birth of Jesus, and we'll see again in chapter 3 as we get to the lineage there. You can see it from chapter 1 of Matthew. Uh, so the line of David is very important. He's a descendant of David, but he's called the Son of God. And so uh, David, in the Spirit now, filled with the Spirit, according to Psalm 110, calls him Lord in the same way that Elizabeth is using that term to call him Lord. So it's a reference that the Jewish mind would have been very sensitive to, that if the baby in the womb of Mary is the Lord, in the same way that David was referencing the Lord as the Messiah. And so that, that connection would have been made very easily there. And it was something that Elizabeth was using intentionally to show that the fulfillment of Psalm 110 was now before her in the person of Jesus and this child in the womb of Mary. And so uh, she's got this humble attitude of, why is it granted to me? That not just my Lord should come and visit me, but the mother of my Lord, the one that is blessed among women, being used by God in this special way. Why do I deserve for her to be here? And so it was, it was a truly incredible uh, thing for her to say there. And then finally, verse 44, she goes on. She says, For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Now, there's been a lot of debate on this. Did the, the, the baby in the womb, did little John at six months uh, in the womb there, have a cognizant recognition of Jesus in the womb of Mary. 
perhaps through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the, you know, John, it says, was going to be filled with the Holy Spirit from before his birth. Jesus there, the full embodiment of God, was there in his presence, and the Holy Spirit would have recognized this. John would have jumped for joy. Certainly, perhaps possible. Or is this simply Elizabeth interpreting the movement of the baby as an expression of joy and confirmation of the work of God in the life of Mary? That's certainly possible, too. Um, we don't need to go into great detail over that. Either way, it doesn't matter. But, but you know, it, it's an indication to show that John is subservient to Jesus. That was the whole point of this statement, that, that John himself celebrates and rejoices in the presence of Jesus, even at birth. Later on in ministry, John is going to go on to say, uh, when the bridegroom arrives, the friends of the bridegroom need to step back. They need to decrease. And he says, I need to decrease that he might increase. And so he realizes that even at his, uh, prior to his birth, the indication given by Luke here is that John is, is understanding John is not the Messiah. John is not the superior one. Jesus is the superior one. Just as Mary is taking a superior position over Elizabeth, Jesus takes a superior position over John, even though both are significant and have a special role in God's plan. You don't get a higher role than Jesus. <laughs> and so... It would have been an incredible passage there to show the superiority of Jesus through the life of Mary, through the expression of Elizabeth there. And then the last verse, verse 45 in the Magnificent, I'm sorry, in the Benedictus of, of Elizabeth uh, says, And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So uh, some translation might, might read this way. It says, Blessed is she who believed because there will be a fulfillment of the word spoken to her by the Lord. Now, either way, this is meant to show that Mary's faithful response to the promise of God, to the word of God, it's an expression of the work of God in her life. Mary received the word of God and she believed what God said, even though she hadn't seen the fulfillment of this yet. And so she's blessed. She's spoken well of by God. She's thought well of by God and worthy of favor from God because of her faith and her willingness to follow the word of God there. And that's a great lesson for you and I that, that we would receive the word of God with humility. We would receive the God with faith, uh, the word of God with faith, that we would trust what he says for us, what he calls us to do, that we would have that same sort of belief, even though we don't see the fulfillment of all of this yet. We don't see the fulfillment of our salvation. We don't see how God is going to provide or take care of. We can trust him at his word, just as Mary has done. And so this wonderful visit between Mary and Elizabeth Elizabeth has this incredible benedicta where she lays out in a hymn-style format, praising God for his wondrous works, for uh, the fruit of Mary's womb, uh, for the recognition of what God is doing in her life and how God is at work. Now, Mary's response in the next 10 verses is an incredible response as well. And it's going to lay out a lot of indications for us about what God is doing in this situation and what Luke is hoping to do in laying the foundation for the rest of his gospel here. Now, the, the next 10 verses, verse 46 through 56, stop the movement of the story. We've been moving uh, through uh, over six months of time frame in the last few verses where uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth are visited and then Elizabeth becomes pregnant and then she's now five months along and now Mary is spoken to and now Mary goes and visits Elizabeth. There's, there's a movement of six to seven months through this time frame. And then we come here to verse 46 and there's no more movement. Uh, verses, really verse 39 through uh, 56, there's no more movement in the story. It's a single afternoon's conversation, if you will, uh, in light of the last seven months of movement that we've seen in the rest of chapter one up to this point. And so there, there's a reason for this, the break in movement in the telling of the story. And that's to give us the hermeneutical importance or, or the understanding behind the meaning of these events. Rather than simply direct the events and continue moving forward, Luke pauses and says, you really need to grasp what's going on here in order for you to be certain, to have certainty about what God is doing and about the message that we're presenting. And so he stops and he breaks this down for us. So remember back in his introduction, Luke, Luke proclaims his purpose in writing to Theophilus. He's writing this orderly account that you may have certainty. 
And it's not just a certainty of the factual nature of these events. Anybody could go and research these things and lay it out. This isn't just a biography in that sense, but that you might have certainty in the significance of these events and, and what God is doing in fulfilling his plan for his people and for the nations. And that's what this Magnificat of Mary is going to provide for us. And so we see all of this rooted in the covenantal purpose of God, which we're going to talk about here. And it reflects back on his dealing with Israel and it looks forward to his ultimate salvation. And so let's dig into this. Now, again, let's look at the formation or the structure of this uh, next verses in verse 46 through 56. It's called the Magnificat of Mary. And so that speaks of the magnificent response, the, the, the glory and praise that comes from Mary and the great things that she says here. Now, there are several things to say about the poetic structure of this passage. First of all, it, it's a psalm that, that looks back to the psalms of praise from the Old Testament, and it's written in that same format. So it, it's the same format as a psalm of praise from the psalms. Now, secondly, there are a lot of what we call parallelisms in this, where we contrast uh, one uh, item with another item, and they're somewhat related, but they're they're opposite each other. Either they're opposite in favor, they're opposite in purpose, or whatnot. In, in this Magnificat, we're going to see that they're uh, you're contrasting the rich with the poor. We're contrasting the low with the high, those who are lowly and humble with those who are powerful and lofty. And you're also uh, contrasting the mighty God with the world in which he oversees. And so there's parallels where these two are pitted side by side to see how God favors or how God judges. And so we're going to see that in the Magnificat of Mary and these parallel structure there. And then third, there, it's very important that we notice the verbs. Now, if we could go back to the Greek and, and, and read this in the Greek, it's very insightful in the way that Luke compiles this together. Uh, the, the verbs themselves, those active verbs of movement and work, um, demonstrate the grace and the power of God. And they're written in the Greek form in what we call the aorist tense. And the aorist tense in the Greek is really the, it's the simple past tense. It means that these are events that have already happened. And it doesn't take into consideration how long it took for them to happen or the method in which they occurred, but these are events are done and, and, and finished. So they're simple past, ten, uh, past tense events. Uh, we could say that, oh, I went to the store. But what we didn't include in that was that it took me four hours to get to there and then to walk through the store and then to get back home again. I simply went to the store and it's done. It's finished. So in this case, as Mary's going through giving her Magnificat, she's going to talk about the glory of God demonstrated through Israel and his work with Israel and his grace and his mercy and his protection of Israel. Even though it may have taken hundreds, if not thousands of years for some, some of these things, it's done. It's finished. And we get to speak of it in that way. And so God is the subject of the verb. So the one that is doing the action is God, not Israel. Israel is not doing these things for themselves. And so what this requires us to do as the reader as or the hearer of the Magnificat is that we have to focus upon the decisive work of God, both in the general events of salvation history, what God has done generally throughout the nations, what God has done generally through Israel, we have to focus on the work of God there, as well as the specific events of human affairs. So God is working to bring about his kingdom of peace and justice and righteousness. And we see God working generally on a global scale, as well as specifically in the detailed affairs of each nation and even in each individual. And it's a testimony to the sovereignty of God in each of those situations. And so we get to look back on God's relationship with Israel and how he's preserved them, how he's protected them, how he's blessed them and brought them to where they are at that point. But we also look forward in this. There's an eschatological hope. There's a end times hope presented here in in the child in Mary's womb, that he is the Messiah, he is the Lord, he is the one to fulfill the promises and covenants of God and usher in the kingdom that everybody's been waiting for. So these next 10 verses are going to bring a lot of this to a crescendo. 
And we see the excitement in Luke as he's presenting uh, the transition from God's past dealing with Israel and his future promise of salvation being met together in the child of Jesus Christ. And so it's a high point of the first several chapters here of this whole nativity scene. It's one of the high points here. Now, finally, one last thing that we can say about this is that we see a movement in this hymn, the Magnificat of Mary, from the personal blessings of God to Mary to the corporate blessings of God to Israel and, and also to all the nations. And so Mary is the central figure of God's grace in verses 46 through 50. And then Israel becomes the central figure in verses 51 through 55. Now, both of them are are identified as God's servant in verse 48, and then again in verse 52 for Israel. Both of them receive the mercy of God, Mary in verse 48 and 50, Israel in verse 54 and 55. And so they they parallel each other and that God has treated them the same way, Mary on the personal uh, level and Israel on the corporate level. And so what this is, is kind of an indicator of is that although Uh, The story of Luke thus far has been focusing on individuals, specific Jews, and how God is using them to fulfill his plan. Notice we've seen Zechariah and Elizabeth. We've seen Mary. Uh, We haven't dealt with Israel as a whole. We're seeing a small, uh, these three key characters thus far. But we're now transitioning to see how these three characters and what God is at work in these three characters' lives is going to affect the whole of Israel and even all of humanity through the birth of this child that he is speaking of. And so we see an incredible movement in this section of God focusing on individuals for the purpose of the whole. Now, one last thing about this. God is presented in two different relations here. Uh, First, he's presented as a divine warrior uh, against those who uh, would persecute or, or, or mistreat others. You know, so he, he is, God is the deliverer for his people. He is the, the God who fights for his people and protects them. But on the contrast, he's also the merciful God who enters into covenants and faithfully interacts with those who don't deserve his favor. For those who uh, are, are recipients of his mercy, that his undeserved favor, God shows great mercy and love and compassion for them who would submit themselves to his will, who are faithful to his covenant, and who fear him. But for all those who don't fear him, for those who put their pride in themselves and in their strength and their riches and their glory and their honor, he's the divine warrior against them. Because those people who are prideful and are arrogant and uh, strong in their own might and rich in their own glory, they, they usually oppress the people. They oppress the poor. And that's what this Magnificat is going to be about and how we're going to get into that. So let's look at the first half, uh, verses 46 through 50, where we see the personal reflection of Mary through this. So verse 46 says, and Mary said, remember, this is in response to the Benedicta of Elizabeth, where she talks about Mary being blessed among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb and the baby leapt for joy and you're blessed because you believed. Mary's response is this. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed for he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Now, the first couple verses, 46 and 47, we've got that those two phrases, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Now, in, in this instance, spirit and soul are used rather interchangeably, and they simply represent uh, the innermost parts of Mary's being, the essence of Mary. She says, my, my deepest parts magnify you and they rejoice in you. And, and then she uses this term that, that my soul magnifies the Lord, and I, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Now, this is a, a incredible statement because where church tradition has taken this. Because Mary, in this case, recognizes that God is her Savior, which means that she is in need of salvation. And we'll look a little bit about what salvation would have meant in the mind of the Jews, but it certainly would have indicated salvation from her condition here on earth, her lowly, humbled position. 
Now, Mary, as we'll understand through this, she is not sinless. She doesn't remain sinless her whole life as some of the church traditions have tried to teach us. In order to, they're, they're trying to protect the divinity of Jesus, the purity of Jesus. In order to do that, they had to say Mary had to be pure. And otherwise, Mary would pass on her uh, sinful nature. But somehow, through the divine conception, a mystery of God there, Jesus is born without the fallen sinful nature of man. He's got the full nature of man, but not the fallen side of it. And so somehow God is able to do that. Some church traditions have taken this too far and said, well, Mary herself must be sinless. And what that tends to cause us to do is to put Mary up on a pedestal. And we now worship Mary as a, a another divine person in that sense. Another person who has full access to God through her perfections and so on. But that's not at all what the Bible teaches. What we're seeing here, Mary says that God is her savior in this. She finds joy and rejoicing in her savior because she herself is seeing her redemption. And she continues to tell us how God is her savior and why she rejoices in that. This is her cause for rejoicing. This is what she's rejoicing over. Now she's going to tell us why she rejoices over a savior. Now, in the Old Testament, uh, God, my savior, God as the savior is used depending on how the word is translated, anywhere between 25 to 30 times. This is a title used for God. Now, the verb in Hebrew used for uh, to save or to deliver is Yasha. Even the name of Jesus comes from this, Yasha, Yeshua. And so uh, Jesus' name means the Lord is my salvation. And so it's coming from this Hebrew word Yasha. And the root word for yasha, yasha comes from a word which means to make wide or make sufficient. And and, and the concept uh, behind that primarily is that God is helping make a way for the people to escape their situation and find freedom. Now, there are two ways which we can take this, and both are found in the Old Testament. So when Mary is saying that she rejoices in God my Savior, she's perhaps meaning both, but she would certainly be familiar with these passages that I'm going to share with you here. Now, the first concept is that God is delivering from sin, and this is the New Testament concept. Our God is a delivering God. We don't always make that a physical deliverance from situations and from from problems, but God is delivering us from sin. That's our problem. And so it's a spiritual deliverance from the slavery of sin, our slavery to the enemy. And so in the Old Testament, we see God being spoken of in this terms in Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2. Uh, In those passages, it says, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden him, his face from you so that he will not hear. So God in that case, is his arm is not too short to save. God is a saving God who will save us from our iniquities that have separated us from him. Also in Psalm chapter 79, verse 9, it says, Help us, O God, our Savior, for the glory of your name. Deliver us, now here's what you're to be delivered from and be helped with, and forgive our sins for your name's sake. God is the savior for the effect or the result of sin in that case. And so in the Old Testament, there was that conception of God being the savior from sin. And Mary would have certainly been familiar with that and perhaps meant that and and rejoicing in God, my savior. I'm now going to have a a way made for me. My forgiveness is nigh. It's, It's here present. Now, in the Old Testament, however, the most common use of the term is deliverance from distress or trouble here in the physical world. Okay. Now, God is called the God of our salvation. It's also God, my Savior, uh, in, in any of those cases. A couple of examples of this, you know, throughout the Psalms. I'll, I'll give you a, a number of verse examples and then read a few. Psalm 25, verse 5. Psalm 27, verse 9. Psalm 38, verse 22. Psalm 42, verse 11, 43, verse 5, Psalm 68, 19. And that last one, Psalm 68, 19 says, Praise be to the Lord, our God, our Savior, who daily bears our burdens. And that's the concept that God would step in and help. God would be a a, a deliverer, a helper, and a bearer of the struggles in this physical life. In Isaiah 45, 15, it talks about the God and Savior of Israel. Uh, in verse 21 of that same chapter, Isaiah 45, it says, There's no God apart from uh, uh, from me, a righteous God and a Savior. 
Um, God talking about himself as the savior of the people there. In Isaiah 62, 11, uh, he says, you know, talking to the people of Israel, see your savior comes and uh, his reward is with them and his recompense accompanies him. There's also multiple other titles throughout there where the savior is our redeemer. He's the hope of Israel. He's the one who's going to redeem Israel from their situation. And certainly in the first century, this would have resonated with the Jews because they were under the heel of Rome. They were occupied by a foreign government and were looking for a Messiah to come and set up his kingdom. So Jesus as the Savior would have easily been seen as a physical Savior setting up the kingdom of God as well as the spiritual Savior uh, bringing forgiveness of sins and redemption for the people that they had been waiting for. So all of that is wrapped up in Mary's first statement there, magnifying the Lord and rejoicing in God my Savior. And then she gives the reason why she does that in verse 48. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Now, uh, other uh, translations would read that he's looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Now, the term used by Luke here uh, is an expression meaning the poor, the, the lowliness, the humble estate. It was a social concept that, that Mary wasn't anything special. Mary wasn't the, the, the most mighty. She wasn't a recognized woman in society. She didn't have money. She didn't have power. She didn't have prestige and esteem. She was your lowly, average, working girl uh, that, that, that would have been diligent in her house, kept a farm, done whatever to support her family and to help out. But she didn't have any special station in life. She didn't have anything to offer that would have been of great value in that sense. And so she was lowly and humble and she was poor. And what God did is he looked on the lowliness of his servant. Mary is the servant of God willing to give what she has to him and God would do the rest. And so for you and I, you may be lowly and humble, but be the servant of God and God will take whatever you do have, whatever lowliness you have, whatever possession you have, whatever talent you have, and he will use it in mighty and great ways. And so the social category of Mary did not prevent her from being used and even blessed amongst all the women. And so we can't use our social status or our power, our economic status as an excuse for not serving the Lord. The Lord's not interested in those things. And so the nation itself is lowly at this time. Mary is even low within that nation. And she's now accepting herself as blessed by God and receiving this this newness, she's saying, the Lord looked upon me in my estate. And then she finishes verse 48, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Even though I was lowly and humble, God is doing great things and people are going to look at me and say different things about me. They're not going to talk about my lowliness. They're going to talk about his greatness. God is going to do great and wonderful things through Mary and he can do great and wonderful things through you and I, though we are some of the lowliest people without resources, without whatever, in the hand of God, that doesn't matter. The willing heart is all that God is looking for. Now, verse 50, she continues on that, that all the generations are going to call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Now, this is kind of the transition in verses 49 and 50 from the, the, the personal account into the, the public or corporate account. In verse 49, we see that God is the mighty God. We, we start to see now the power of God demonstrated here. We, we see his, his mercy in verse 48 that he's looked upon the lowly and he's, he's raised the lowly out of their humble estate and placed them into a great value and worthiness in his sight and in his hand. And now he is the mighty God who's done great things for me. The power of God uh, by, by impregnating Mary through the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the great and mighty God is doing these great things in the life of Mary. And so um, he's placed Mary. This is, this is what she's really saying. Mary has now been placed in the line of those that God has used in a mighty way. Now, it seems almost arrogant to think that I'm in the line of Abraham and Moses and David, but that's what Mary's doing here. God, in his might, in his glory, in his power, has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His name is set apart and distinct and different. And God is doing this incredible work and working through me to do this great and mighty thing. 
And so only God would do that. Only God would do the glorious and mighty things through such lowly people. And so Mary is recognizing her her, uh, status as blessed of God. She's accepting that now and her worthiness based on God's assessment of her because God has called her blessed, because God has seen her worthy of use. And so that's an incredible thing for Mary to transition from the identity of a lowly small town girl into now the one that God does mighty workings through. And as we begin to see God use us in our lives and we begin to make ourselves available for his service, he does mighty things through us. And we begin to see that we are worthy, not because of our goodness, but because of his mercy, because of his grace. And now verse 50 We transition from the personal to the corporate. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. So what is it that qualified Mary? It was the mercy of God because she feared the Lord. She simply trusted God. She revered God. She honored God and put her faith in him to do this work. And therefore, God desires to give his mercy to those sorts of people. And so God is looking for the willing. God is looking for the yielded, for the humble, for those who fear him and would be willing to serve him, for those who put their faith in him. Both in the past in Israel, that's what qualified all the servants of Israel before, and especially now for those in the future, as we continue to take this message forward, as we continue to live out this life that he's called us to, he will use the lowly and the humble who put their faith and trust in him. Now, verses 51 through 55, we see the corporate nature of this. We spoke about the individual nature in Mary in verses 46 through 49 and into 50. And then 51 through 55, we see the corporate blessing involved in this. It says, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those with humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Now, there's an incredible statement there that in verse 51, he has shown strength with his arm. This is now God in the mighty warrior term. God has fought on behalf of his people. God has defeated his enemies. He's brought low those who were once lofty and haughty. The divine purposes of God are now brought out of the heavens and into the socio-political, economic, religious realm of the earth that we are living in. So God has designs and purposes that are not just reserved for a spiritual heaven, but they're meant to be lived out here on earth. And that's what she's talking about here. The term, the strength of his arm. It's a special a term used throughout scripture to speak about the extreme or, or, or the awesome work of God in unique situations. We see it used in, in creation back in Genesis. It's the strength of his arm that brought forth all of these things, the mighty work of God in creation. We see it in God's preservation of his people through special events. It's used regularly and, and, and specifically in the Exodus account where Moses is leading the people out of Egypt and into the promised land. And it's the mighty, strong arm of God that is doing this work. And so for Mary to use this term, she's identifying what God is doing in her with what God has done in these past events. And it would be a great testimony of the faithfulness of God to his people and his continuing working of them. And so this is a, the pregnancy of Mary is an event that is so momentous. It's on the level of the Exodus. It can be related to these great and mighty acts of God in the history of Israel. And look at what God is doing today. He's bringing forth a child from a virgin. It's an incredible thing that God is doing by the strength of his arm reserved for special, unique circumstances. So the birth of this child is nothing common It's something that's unique. And then she goes on to talk about this threefold demonstration of God's power and might. There are specific participants that she's going to identify here. We see some incredible parallelism taking place here where Mary puts uh, different characters together there. She uh, puts the the proud in contrast with the lowly. Uh, She puts the, uh, the hungry in contrast to the rich. And she puts down the, uh, the mighty with the humble. And so we, we see these put side by side and we see what God does for those who are on the wrong end of this. And so 
What Luke is doing by formulating things this way, perhaps it's the direct quotation, perhaps Luke is, is intentionally doing, placing this here. Luke is meaning to convey something to us through this passage. He's identifying the opponents of God in these three characteristics that we see laid out here. And these are the opponents of Jesus that we're going to see throughout the remainder of the Gospel of Luke and even into the book of Acts. That these are those who grasp for the positions of authority and recognition. And in doing so, they exclude the less fortunate, uh, those who are lowly in, in both their service, those who are worthy of being served, and in their social structure, those who are worthy of being accepted in. And these are uh, people that delight in the power that comes from having dominion and having status over others. And so they're trusting in their own goodness, their own wealth, their own authority, their own power to the exclusion of the lowly and the humble. And we've just seen that God loves the lowly and the humble and he loves to elevate them and use them in mighty and wonderful ways. And so we've got a, a, a contrast here between these two people. Now, we've got to notice that those who are uh, the, the rich, those who are the proud, those who are the mighty, those who are talked of in this way, these are not unfortunate victims of circumstance. It's not that they, they are forced down this road or anything. These are those who actively oppress and mistreat others for their own selfish purposes. They've rejected the call of God. They've lacked faith in God, and they per- pursue self-satisfaction and gratification. And so that's an abomination to God. And that's what we're seeing here, even at the very beginning of the life of Jesus. So God's judgment and action against such people is an act of graciousness towards those who are lowly, weak, and poor. He's showing his favor to them while he's rejecting those who set themselves up against God. So let's look at those in verses 51 through 53, we see those contrasted. He shows the strength of his arm. How does he show him the strength of his arm? Well, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. So first thing, we've got the proud here. The proud are those that think too much of themselves. They're proud of their own glory, of their own goodness, of their own ability, of their own strength, whatever it is, but they're proud of themselves. They take glory in their own righteousness, glory in their own abilities. And it says that God scatters them in their own hearts. So the thoughts of their heart. Now, the pride that we're talking about here, it's not an external matter. Pride is an internal thing. It's a condition of the heart. It's the thought of the heart that makes us think we're better than we are. And so that pride in the heart is a selfish pride. And what God does by by scattering the thoughts of their heart is he's taking away the peace. He's taking away the ability to think rightly about themselves. And the prideful person whose, whose heart is in conflict and in turmoil will never find the peace, will never find the joy, will never find the contentment that he's seeking for in himself. Because in himself, there's confusion, there's scattering of thoughts. And so the heart is all in turmoil because God has scattered the thoughts of the heart of the proud. And so, and in doing that, the proud can no longer be proud of themselves. They've got to find solutions for this. They, they see their own humility. They see their own struggles. But in the hearts of those who are not proud, the hearts of those who look to God for assistance, who, who serve God with all of their hearts, God, God brings peace. God brings order. God brings contentment. God brings rest. And so the proud there are, are, are all a flutter in their heart and struggle to find that contentment. And so God's judged the heart of the proud in that, in that way by scattering their thoughts. In the verse 52, he goes on to say that he's brought down the mighty from their thrones. So we've got the mighty speaking of those in position. They sit on thrones. They're above the others. They're above the law at this point. Many of the, the kings and rulers would have uh, had a dominion in such a way that they didn't have to follow the law. They were uh, a law unto themselves in many cases. And they would uh, set the law out of the reach of others so that only they could be seen as high and mighty. And so they exercised power and authority and dominion over others. And so they used their might against others in order to keep them complacent and to keep them at bay, to keep them uh, under uh, slavery, if you will, under a a form of, of, of dominion so that they can remain mighty in their positions. But what God does is he brings them down from their thrones. He takes them down out of their exalted position and places them amongst the people. He takes away their position of authority, takes away their position of might, and puts them in the lowly and humble position. 
But what he does there, it's contrasted at the end of verse 52 with those of humble estate, that God exalted those of humble estate. So those who were lowly, God lifts them up from their humility, from their low. Again, we're speaking of that that humble or lowly position uh, as one of uh, poverty in that sense. There is a physical, social, economic poverty that many people lived in. And they were subjected to that and they had no way to get out. They had no way to provide, no way to uh, pursue these other things because they were pursuing the very basics to live on. What God does is he lifts them up. He exalts them. And so for the mighty person, the, the great fear for them is to lose their might. For others to share in their might or have to have an equal basis because you can no longer have dominion over equals. And so that's what that fear of the mighty is. God brings them down to a place of equality where we all stand in similar lowliness before God. And then finally, in verse 53, it says, He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. So we've seen the proud, we've seen the mighty, and now we see the rich. God sends the rich away empty. These are the rich that, now it's not speaking about anyone that has money, but it's speaking about those who have trust in their riches and mistreat others in order to gain more. For those who hold on to their riches as if that's the purpose and meaning of their life. Their provision and well-being is is determined by their riches. And if they only had more, they need to have more than the next guy. And they begin to trust more in their riches than in their Lord. And so they reject the cry of those in lowly positions. They reject to be generous and kind and compassionate. They reject the opportunities to use their riches for the benefit of others. And so what he does is he it says that he he sends them away empty. Now, he doesn't necessarily take away their riches, but the emptiness, I would argue, is a, a spiritual emptiness. He doesn't meet their hunger. Because notice in, in the beginning of this, in verse 53, he says he's filled the hungry with good things. Now, that could be the physical filling by providing them food, providing them things necessary for life. But I would also read into it a spiritual perspective that he fills those who are hungry for the Lord with good things, with the contentment, the peace, the satisfaction, the joy, the love that we desire. He fills those who are hungry with those things. But those who are rich and find contentment in their riches, they go away empty because they don't have the source of love and joy and peace. They don't have the Lord themselves. And so that's the judgment themselves. God is a mighty warrior defends the lowly and the poor, and he sends away the proud. He brings down the mighty. He sends the rich away empty-handed. And and that's the contrast that we see here about God's working on behalf of his people to preserve and to protect them. When we submit to him, when we follow him, when we fear him, God does incredible things for us. And then this is summed up in verse 54 and 55. We'll wrap it up here. It says, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. So God working personally in Mary and corporately in Israel is based upon and a reflection of what God has been doing throughout the history of Israel. So he's helped Israel. He's continued to work in Israel in remembrance of his mercy because he remembers that he had compassion on this people thousands of years ago under Abraham. And he remembers that now over the last uh, hundreds of years, God has been doing a work. He's been taking them into exile and bringing them back and restoring them and protecting them and keeping his promises faithful and true. God has done all of this according to, as it says in verse 55, According to what he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. That's a reference back to the Abrahamic covenant. God has made promises to Abraham and to the Israelites through the centuries. And he will remain faithful to them. And he will be the faithful God to defend them as the mighty warrior while showing mercy according to his covenant. That's the Magnificat of Mary. And and all of this is brought forth by the child in her womb. This child in her womb is God my Savior. Look at what God has done in the life of Israel as a nation. Look at what God has done in the life of these individuals over these years. Look at God's plan of bringing about his kingdom on earth. And now look at the child in my womb. This is significant. This is a momentous occasion. This is the child of the promise of God now being brought forth according to the mercy of God, to the covenant of God, to the faithfulness of God. And we can celebrate and glorify and praise God for that. 
And so Mary, it says in verse 56, remained with her about three months and returned home. Perhaps she was present for the birth of John. Perhaps she wasn't. She might've stayed long enough to see that. Been one of the relatives in verse 68 who was there for the birth and and questioning the naming. She might've been uh, home at that point already. It doesn't really matter. But uh, Mary begins to leave and allows the focus to return back to Zechariah and Elizabeth and the birth of John. And then we're going to pick back up again with Mary in chapter 2 to see the birth of Jesus in that case. So as we finish this section, we've got to realize that Elizabeth and Mary are both identifying something incredible that God is at work doing. He is fulfilling the covenants of the Old Testament. He's bringing salvific history to a crescendo, to a point that all of Israel would have been waiting for in faithfulness to the covenants and faithfulness to the working of God in the lives of the people. And so God uses the lowly. He resists the proud, gives grace to the humble. He's used a humble girl, a humble priest's wife and a humble priest to bring about one of the most momentous and glorious occasions in the history of Israel since the Exodus, since the creation, showing his strong, mighty arm to protect and preserve and to be a savior for his people. And so as we read this section, this isn't simply a dialogue back and forth between women. These are incredible songs of praise for the faithfulness and the goodness and the glory of God in fulfilling his covenant promises and bringing salvation through his mercy and his grace to you and to me, that we can have the hope of eternal life with him. So I hope that you're blessed by reading that. I hope that brings a whole new perspective to what they were saying here. And as we continue on through these next couple chapters, I hope it brings just an excitement of what God was doing in the lives of these people and bringing these children to uh, to be born. It wasn't a normal birth. This is not a, a an average thing. This is a magnificent momentous, significant thing that God is doing here and something we get to revel in even today. So thanks for joining us today. I hope this blessed you. We'll pick up again next time in verse 60, I'm sorry, 57, as we see the birth of John the Baptist and we get to hear uh, how God is bringing all this to completion. Make sure you check us out on mathetide.org. We've got uh, lots of other resources there, some updates on our ministry and what we're doing and we'd love to have you there. And please subscribe to this, share it with friends that you think might enjoy it. And uh, our desire is that anybody who would like to study the word of God with us would have access to it and uh, would be able to enjoy and and glean from this. We also have stuff on our YouTube channel and uh, every other opportunity we have, we're going to share the word with you guys. So uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for being here with us. Pray you're blessed and see you next time.